Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord. And our prayer is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would minister to us through this, your word. And later on, as we share the, the Lord's Supper, minister to us through that ordinance and sacrament as well. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> We're often asked to provide <clears throat> proof of our identity these days, aren't we? It's, it's, it's difficult, increasingly difficult to get anything done uh, without providing some evidence of who we are. Uh, and in some ways, it's a terrible comment on our society's lack of trust. But it's an even more terrible comment on our own lack of trustworthiness. I picked up a parcel the other day um, and was asked to provide a form of ID. And that's what it said in the email. When you come to the shop, bring a form of ID. Uh, and I, th I thought I was pretty sure they didn't mean an infectious disease. Uh, so, so I took my driving license <clears throat> along with a virus just in case. And it's true, I did have a bit of a bug. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> well, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we are introduced to a person called the servant. But who is the servant? What is his identity? And what will the servant do? What is his mission? And then thirdly, how will the servant carry out this mission? What is his manner? In what way or what manner will the servant carry out his mission? Well, firstly then, we'll look at the servant's identity. If you look with me at the passage, uh, we see something straight away. He is a man. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He's a man. Verse 1, he is chosen by the Lord. In verse 6, he is called by the Lord or commissioned by the Lord. As I said in the reading, the you in verse 6 is singular, uh, masculine. The Lord here is speaking to his servant. And therefore, the Lord who is God... The Lord who is God, see that in verse 5, God the Lord, the Lord who is God calls him my servant, my chosen one, because he is chosen and called by the Lord who is God. And straight away we see that this servant of the Lord is no ordinary servant. He has been called, verse 6, in righteousness, and he will be anointed with the Spirit of God. I will put my spirit on him, verse 1. And he will rule like a king, won't he? It's true, the word king is not mentioned here, <clears throat> but the language here points to someone like a king, a powerful king, a just king, and a merciful king. Someone who will rule over not just Israel, but the nations, not just bringing light and hope to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, end of verse 6, to the Gentiles as well. And here is someone God delights in, someone whom God loves dearly and deeply, someone whom the Lord God upholds and whose hand he holds on to, verse 6 again. So the question then is, who is this 
servant of the Lord, anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to rule in such a way to bring justice to the nations, to the whole world, not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles to be a light for them. And we, well, did you do this at school? Where are the answers? The back of the book? Well, the answer is at the back of the book, isn't it? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We didn't read this earlier, but let's read it now. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the baptism of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, that's the river Jordan. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him or resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, the one in whom I delight, with him I am well pleased. And then if you turn over to Luke chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, Luke 9, verse 34 and 35. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. So at verse 34, and Peter has been babbling on about putting up shelters and tents and tabernacles. He didn't know what he was saying. But while Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Shades of the tabernacle, shades of Mount Sinai, actually. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. So the servant of the Lord prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Christ was born is none other than Jesus, the Son of God, chosen and loved by God and anointed by God the Spirit, chosen and loved by God the Father, and anointed by God the Spirit. And you notice there's a reminder here in the second reading in Luke 9, there's a reminder of what we were hearing last week from Ecclesiastes 5. You know, don't be in a rush to speak when you go near to God. What does God the Father say? Listen to him. Listen to him. Stop. Stop babbling, Peter. And, and more seriously, just before this, Jesus has talked about going to the cross, that he was going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, 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 this will never happen to you. No, Peter, no, Peter, stop it. Get behind me, Satan. Listen. And God the Father saying, listen to Jesus. Don't argue with him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus, my son who is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. One last verse from the New Testament for now. There's a remarkable verse in John's Gospel. You see the testimony is across all the Gospels. But let's just look at this verse from John chapter 12, verse 41. John chapter 12, verse 41. John, in the verses before this, has just quoted from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah chapter 6. And then he says that these prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus. 
But look at what he says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. He saw Jesus' glory. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Yeah, there's a reference there probably to, to the vision in the temple, isn't there? But so much more. He spoke about him because what John has just quoted here is from 53 in chapter 6. He saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42 is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. Well, if that's the servant's identity, what about the servant's mission? The servant's mission. Well, before we look at the nature of the servant's mission, notice this. Because he is the servant of the Lord, the Lord who is God, verse 5, the servant's mission is God's mission. The servant's mission is God's mission. And Isaiah is prophesying that one day, one day a man will come on a mission from God. Not to help save a, an orphanage like the Blues Brothers, but on a, a much more serious, that was an important mission too, but uh, a much more serious mission. So, so when we read what the servant's mission is, remember this is God's mission. And, and, and notice that God's plan for his people, Israel, is also his plan for the nations of the world. For God's mission is a mission to the world, and it will be accomplished through his servant, Jesus Christ. And what that means, you see, and here I'm paraphrasing Richard Sibbs, who's written a, his most famous book is probably this one called The Bruised Read, based on Isaiah 42, verse 3. And what that means, you see, is to paraphrase something that Richard Sibbs says, that the father not only delights in the son, here is my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight, he delights in his servant's mission. Which means that God the father delights in what Jesus has come to do for you and for me and for the nations of the world. He delights in it. Well, what then is the, the nature of that mission, the mission the Father delights in and that the Son has come to bring about? Well, the word that jumps out from verses 1 to 4 is repeated several times as the word justice. He will bring, end of verse 1, he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, end of verse 3, he will bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word justice. Uh, perhaps you think of police and lawyers, court cases and verdicts of guilty and not guilty. Uh, justice as a matter of right and wrong, of crime and punishment. Or perhaps you think of justice as a matter of fairness. Uh, things like working conditions and a proper wage uh, for proper work done. And perhaps you have heard like me, it would be hard not to hear the words like social justice. And even two days ago, I heard the phrase climate justice. And you wonder what that actually means in practice. Very easy to toss these phrases out. What do they actually mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the word for justice, it's a good word, mishpat. 
That's the kind of word you can remember, isn't it? Mishpat. I'm not sure when you would ever use it, but next time you're at the bus stop. Mishpat is the biblical word for justice in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. It's a very broad, rich, rich term. It has to do with living life in line with God's law and God's teaching. And that's why it says there at the end of verse 4, in his teaching, in his law, Torah, the islands will put their hope, the countries at the far end of the world, the nations. The Torah, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yes, it's translated as law, but it's much more than commands, isn't it? It's stories, it's narrative, examples, warnings, encouragements, it's teaching, it's instruction. And the whole of the Torah, when you think of the stories in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, yes, it is. You see at least two kinds of justice. It is a righteous justice. There are commands, there are ethical instructions. There is the Ten Commandments. There are things to do and not to do. It's a righteous justice. But mishpat is also a restorative justice. It involves bringing relief to the oppressed, the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the alien, the orphan, those without hope, the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks, including the Jewish exiles in Babylon, and indeed the, the remnant of Jews left behind in the promised land. It is a restorative justice. Think of the Jubilee regulations. Land was to be re returned after a period of years. It is a justice that has to do in verse 7 with setting free those who sit in darkness and opening eyes that are blind. It is a form of justice, this mishpat that aims to create, as one writer has said, it aims to create actually the perfect human society. And that's what biblical justice is. It is a righteous justice and it is a restorative justice. And it's a justice that will be brought about by this servant ruler who will be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Verse 6. Ask, ask yourselves as I ask you, do we not need this kind of justice today? Do we not need this kind of ruler today, this kind of king? Someone who will bring God's justice mishpat to the nations of the world and establish God's justice on earth and not just in Ukraine, not just in Myanmar, not just in the Middle East, but here in Scotland and here in Inverness in our streets and in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, in our hospitals, in our councils and in our churches. A justice marked by righteousness and restoration, restoring things to the right way. That phrase is used in Isaiah 40, verse 14, about how no, no one can teach God the right way. That literally is the way of mishpat, the way of justice, the right way. Uh, we sang earlier in the hymn, didn't we? The kingdom of God is justice and joy, for Jesus restores what sin would destroy. And that is what we see in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the coming of the servant of the Lord, 
that we read earlier, Matthew 12, the background to the story we read in Matthew 12 was a man with a paralyzed, a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. What, what was the question Jesus asked? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? No one answered. And he healed the man and the religious authorities are furious at this challenge to their authority and they are plotting to kill Jesus, Matthew 12, verse 14. But Jesus knew it was lawful to do good every day of the week, including the Sabbath day, to exercise mishpat, to exercise this rich, righteous and restorative justice, to do things the right way, God's way. And then we read this, didn't we? Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the servant's mission from God, a mission to bring hope to the world, a mission to usher in God's new society through the kingdom of God, where Jesus, the servant of the Lord, rules as servant king. Now, it's true, isn't it, just before we leave this point and move on to the last one, it's true as the hymn goes on to say in another verse, God's kingdom is come, the gift and the goal. In Jesus begun, in heaven made whole. Because here and now, we look around the world and we know Jesus has come, but here and now we live between the two horizons of Isaiah's prophecy. Yes, partially fulfilled in the first coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ, inaugurated, ushered in with the first coming of Jesus Christ. But one day it will be completely fulfilled with the second coming or advent of Jesus Christ. And that is what we wait for in this season of Advent. Not Christmas we're waiting for. Christmas has come. Christ has been born. We wait for the return of the King the return of the king to rule over a world where swords will be beaten into plowshares, a world full of justice and joy, a world where sorrow and sighing have flown away. Now, don't you want to be part of that? Don't you long to be part of that? And the good news is that you can be. You can be part of that. When you put your trust in Jesus and commit your life to him as your servant king. When you bow your head and your heart and your soul and your whole life before his merciful majesty. And his majesty is a merciful one, isn't it? And we see that in the servant's manner, the way in which he carries out his mission. The servant's manner. Yes, it's true, isn't it? When we look at the passage, the servant's mission will be carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit. How else did Jesus not falter or be discouraged? Verse 4. There's, there's a hint there, isn't there? Of the opposition that the servant would face. 
How else did Jesus not falter or be discouraged except by the power of the Spirit when he faced all the difficulties and opposition in life, never mind the suffering of the cross? How else, how else could Jesus, a man born of the Virgin Mary, bring justice to the nations and usher in the kingdom of God? Yes, this ministry, this mission will be carried out in the power of the Spirit and through the teaching and ministry of God's words. End of verse 4. But the manner of this mission, the manner in which Jesus went about in the power of the Spirit, the manner in which he ministered God's words to people, that manner is seen in verses 2 and 3. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Are you feeling bruised this morning? Like a reed battered and bruised by the winds of life? Bruised by circumstances beyond your control? Bruised perhaps by your own foolishness and sin, or bruised by the sin of others. Perhaps you're feeling like a smouldering wick. You know, the flame of your hope and your faith has burnt low. Like a candle just on the edge of extinction, you know, sputtering and smoking with just the smallest glimmer of a red glow in the wick. Listen to what God is saying. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, will not hector you, will not lecture you, will not shout at you. He will not raise his voice to you. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will never snuff out. Look at how Jesus dealt with Peter who denied him with Thomas who doubted him, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, bruised reeds and smouldering wicks in the aftermath of the devastating events of that first Good Friday. They had deserted him. They had denied him. And now they were confused about him. Do you remember what the two disciples said? We had hoped. We had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Smouldering wick faith and hope. We had hope. But a bruised reed Jesus did not break and a smouldering wick he did not snuff out. And when Jesus spoke to them, what do we read happened in their hearts? Hearts were burning. Burning. As Jesus fanned into flame the embers of their faith and hope. Look at how Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery, bruised by her own sin and the sin of her partner, who's nowhere to be seen, of course, but not only bruised by her own sin and the sin of the man, but surrounded by a religious mob who wanted to bruise her further. Has anyone condemned you? No. And neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. A bruised reed he did not break. Look at how Jesus dealt with the man whose son the disciples could not heal, just following the story of the transfiguration. Do you remember what the man said? 
comes to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, if you can, said Jesus. Everything is possible for one who believes. Not a lecture, not shouting at him. Just a few quiet words to challenge him and to encourage him towards faith in Jesus, the servant of the Lord, who is full of the Father's love and compassion and mercy. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Smoldering, tiny spark of faith. I do believe, but help me. I don't believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus did not say, well, I'll wait until you overcome your unbelief before I heal this boy. No. Jesus did not snuff out the smoldering wick of faith. He blew gently upon it to encourage it. And with compassion and mercy, he healed the boy, took him by the hand and lifted him up. Richard Sibbs, who has written this book called The Bruise Read, says, you know, a holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. What he means by that is, it's very often only when we are in that position of feeling our weakness that we will look to Jesus. But he also went on to say, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than in sin of us. So if you're feeling despair this morning, <clears throat> whatever the reason, there is no better time or place to look to Jesus. Because here's another quotation from Richard Sibbs. Yes, the language is a bit old fashioned, but you get the sense of it. As the mother, as a mother is tenderest, is most tender to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. As the mother is not, is not true of the best mothers, most tender with the diseased and the weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully turn towards, incline to the weakest. I'm nearly finished. I've been reading this book by Dean Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. Some of you will have read it, but I, I recommend it. I've not finished it yet, but really very, very helpful. And again, drawing from the wisdom, the biblical rich wisdom of the Puritans like Richard Sibbs and others, you know that we tend to think when we mess up and get it wrong that somehow the Lord you know, is cool towards us, but it's quite the reverse. Actually, the heart of the Lord is drawn even closer to us when we're in a mess. As a mother is tender and most tender to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. And is that not what we see so vividly at the cross of Christ? Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, inclining towards us in mercy mercy. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, pierced for our transgressions. What's the next word in the old? Bruised. Bruised for our iniquities. Because the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his bruises, his wounds, we are healed. Well, thank God for Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we who are bruised reads receive healing through the one who was bruised on the cross for us. And thank you, Father, that even though we may feel our weakness, that in many ways, Father, that is a good place to be as we turn to Jesus, who most mercifully inclines to the weakest. Richard Sibbs also said, a weak hand may receive a rich jewel. And Father, that is so wonderfully and beautifully true. And Father, we, however we are feeling this morning, we want to be those who with faith receive the kindness of Christ, the servant of the Lord, who will one day return to bring justice in full to the nations, who will bring in full that light to the Gentiles and that hope for the peoples of the world. And Father, we thank you that even here and now, the Spirit of Christ is at work across the world, establishing and pushing back the boundaries, extending the boundaries of the kingdom of God. And until that day when Christ returns, help us to play our part in that as well. That even as we are ministered to by Jesus, the Messiah of mercy, that we would show the same mercy and justice to others. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.